know why you sign a release when you receive your prescription? Stick around and find out. The law can be a difficult trail to navigate. There are cases that change precedents, and there are cases that change America. Some you know, and some you don't. Join Brian Cruz and Becky Granado of Cruz and Pascara as they dive into the most notorious cases in America and the ones you may not have heard of. This is Behind the Gavel. Today we're going to tell our listeners about our case involving a client versus um, auto manufacturer and a pharmacy. This case is key and a reason why when you walk up to pick up your prescription that you've dropped off, they ask you, do you need to speak to the pharmacist? And they ask you to actually sign. So we're going to tell you why. Well, let me tell you about this case, Becky. This is one that we did together, and uh, let me give you a little background information on this. Let me tell you what happened to Sam uh, that day. Let me start first with that morning. He got up. He took his medicine, uh, took his three pills, and uh, got ready for the day. He had a next-door neighbor he spoke with for about 10 minutes, and he was feeling fine got into his vehicle to make a trip. You're not going to believe what happened next. I believe he was on his way to Give Kids the World, a charity event that morning at 7 a.m. He was very much in the uh, older part of his life, retired, happy, active, good man, volunteered, got a lot of joy out of the children. But the thing about it was interesting was the neighbor said he's perfectly fine, which is what led to the investigation. Um, it led the medical examiner to wonder what caused him to have a seizure as he's in the car, drive off the road, hit a tree, and lacerate his liver and die. There's just no reason for it. There were, the witnesses say the car just veered straight off. There, it, no one ran him off the road. He didn't wasn't swerving down the road. It was just a sudden, immediate event. So this is like a CSI investigative case for us. Here we have a, a man who's been killed. He had a seatbelt on, and he swerved off the road for no reason. That resulted in the next stop being... The medical examiner's office. Yes, I remember we went to the medical examiner's office and sat with her, and she at the time was very, very much trying to figure out what happened. Um, but she had run the toxicology report, so she's showing us the slides on a big screen. Um, what you could see the staining of the medicine not matching, and in her opinion, He could have survived this accident had he not had the seizure, which ultimately led to the accident. Um, Also, she thought that the seatbelt contributed to it because it had lacerated his liver in two. I mean, here's a man that had a seatbelt on. His restraint system was on him. And yet when he hit the tree, and it wasn't at, at a high speed, but 
it was, you know, a survivable accident. Why did the seatbelt lacerate his liver? Well, again, this is just like a CSI investigative case. And here we are in the medical examiner's office, and she's showing uh, us the slides. We're looking at these slides of the various tissues, and she's showing us exactly what happened and how it matched up right with where the seatbelt would have been. And so ultimately, you know, the medical examiner concluded that the reason he went off the road was due to the medication, and he had been given a dose of medications that were contraindicated that resulted in a seizure. And when he had the seizure, he went off the road for, and struck the tree, and then his liver was lacerated, and he died. So, so I have a quick question. It's Camille here. Um, so, supposing that he only had the seizure and nothing happened with the seatbelt, was it still survivable? Good question. And what we think is um, that had he not had the seizure, of course, he wouldn't have gone off the road. So that was the first thing we looked at. And we determined, and the medical examiner's office determined, that's what caused him to exit the roadway and strike the tree. Upon striking the tree, it probably was a survivable accident um, had he had the, a proper seatbelt and an airbag in it. Uh, but the seatbelt, as it was designed at the time, lacerated his liver in two. So we kind of had a double uh, way of pursuing this. And that's what we often do in these cases because we specialize in taking motor vehicle accident cases looking at how they happened and see, is there a product defect? Is there a defect in some part of the safety system of the vehicle that also contributes to the injury or contributes to the death? And in fact, in this case, we were able to prove that it did. Okay. So I have another question. Um, since there's basically two defendants, um, what was their standing point? Like what was their defense? Well, Basically, uh, what they were doing is pointing the fingers at each other. So in this type of uh, case, we want to have both of them at the same time involved in the case so that they actually point at each other as being the cause of the of the injury or the cause of the death. And uh, they don't pay quite as much attention to the plaintiff. It's just a strategy upon which you can then... Uh, utilize both of the defenses uh, to to fight each other, and it creates a conflict between them, and it results in ultimately more money to our clients. Well, also at the time, Camille, um, there were um, cases going on across the country against the car manufacturer for the same seatbelt. Ours wasn't the only case at that time. That's how we knew the seatbelt was defectively designed. However, the manufacturer had not told the general public. Now, obviously, as as a law firm, we could do the research and see, but there had been several multi-million dollar verdicts against the manufacturer for this particular shoulder belt. Alrighty, so now that we're done with the timeline, we're gonna jump into our debunking segment. Um, a couple questions we had from our listeners is, 
Can I afford a lawyer? Is there like any out-of-pocket costs for, uh, you know, car accidents or product liability cases like this one? Well, Camille, that's a good question. I think everyone sees on television no recovery, no cost, no fees. And that is pretty standard in the personal injury practice of law. Our contract clearly says that we are only paid if, in fact, we make a recovery for you. And we do not ever charge our clients costs unless we are successful in the recovery. So if we took this case and investigated it and we were not able to make a claim, and that does happen on occasion, it wouldn't cost you anything. So people can look at it as like the lawyer is investing basically in your case, because obviously the office has certain fees, but nothing is recovered unless obviously... Uh, there's a settlement. That is one way to look at it. Absolutely. We we have our time, which is valuable. We have our resources. We have to pay for records, reports, things like that. But that is the cost of doing business, and we don't pass it on unless we're successful. This allows people to come and get an attorney who maybe couldn't afford one. Yeah, yeah. So it's basically personal injury is open to anyone. You don't have to have a certain lifestyle to be able to afford a lawyer. That's correct. And some people want to hire us because they know that deep in their heart that something's wrong. They just don't know what it is. They know that their loved one shouldn't have been injured, shouldn't have been hurt, that it was wrong, but they don't know exactly how to go about it. So by us working on a contingency basis or only being paid if we recover, they're able to come in and we can help them. Just like in the Sanderson case that we were talking about uh, involving his death from the prescription medications and the seizure and hitting the tree and the defective seatbelt, uh, we did that investigation. We investigated the case, uh, invested in uh, accident reconstructionists, I uh, had to pay the medical examiner for her time uh, to talk to us. And so we invested in the case with the understanding and belief that we would be able to be successful. But at the very beginning, you're not sure. You don't know. Uh, this is our way as a law firm of being able to put it out there so that people can know that they can afford to hire us. We'll cover our fees ourselves, and we'll cover the cost. Uh, and... You know, if we didn't make the recovery, we would just close our file and go to the next case. Uh, and that doesn't usually happen. Usually we have a sense of what's going to happen, and usually we're going to be successful. Okay, so another question our listeners had is, what's like a common red flag when opening up a case with an unknown lawyer, because nowadays, obviously, there's like Google reviews or um, Avo reviews that um, people can get to know their lawyer without actually getting to know them. Um, what's something that people should look out for if they're not like in the Orlando area and, you know, can't hire us? What should they be aware of? Well, that's a, a very uh, complex question, but a very good one. And it's one that a lot of people ask, you know, what lawyer should I hire? What do I look for? Uh, first of all, you want to get a personal injury lawyer if you have a personal injury case. Otherwise, it'd be analogous to like a chiropractor trying to do brain surgery instead of the neurosurgeon. So you want a lawyer that uh, specializes in the field, which we do. You want a lawyer that has the knowledge, experience, and 
reputation, as well as the resources to take your case, investigate it, and pursue it. Pursue it all the way to the end. If it takes one year or two years, then we'll do that. Um, you look for a lawyer that has been, has the experience with your particular type of case. And taking it back again to the Sanderson case, we specialize in motor vehicle accidents. And then if there's a product aspect, a defective product, a dangerous defect in the vehicle or, or in the safety system, then we investigate that as well and we pursue it. Uh, now, so one of the, using this case as an example, one of the questions would be, hey, have you ever had this kind of case? You know, if so, how many of these? Do you guys do a lot of these? And those are the kind of questions you want to ask. Well, Brian, interesting that you should say that. I'm going to add something for you, Camille. I spent about half an hour on the telephone yesterday with um, a lady who called me from Texas. And she was asking the same thing. She was had been injured, and she's looked at four different attorneys. And uh, I said to her, on three of the attorneys I Googled real quick, I could see that none of them had any experience with um, extensive litigation. And I'm not saying that doesn't make them a good lawyer, but they had no mechanical background. They had no medical background. They had no knowledge in these things. And I think to do cases like this, it's crucial that your attorney have some other knowledge outside of just the law. He has to be able to tell a jury in layman's terms what a mechanical failure was. It, it's not an easy thing to, to take months and months of our knowledge and research and take it and put it into simple words that we only get one chance to tell a juror on one day. Am I, do you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah, and I want to chime in too. I get calls all the time where people hire a specific lawyer um, and they're like, oh, can you explain this and this to me because my lawyer doesn't call me back. That's a definite red flag that you definitely need someone that's always available to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Lack of communication is one of the biggest complaints that we hear, you know, when people call us and they've already had an attorney, they're calling us to they want to change attorneys. You know, the thing that comes out most is they have no communication with them. And to do a case like this, you really have to communicate with your attorney. You have you have to communicate with your client. You must know the client. You can't. You have to get to know them sometimes. We have to get to know what made their lives different. What was Mr. Sanderson doing? How did he, how do we know he wasn't misusing his drugs? Because we investigate. We go into his life. We talk to his doctors, his wife, his friends, his neighbor, who said he was perfectly fine. You know, you have to take the time to do that. It's just not as easy as people think it is, you know, because that question would come up. How do you know Mr. Sanderson wasn't taking his drugs? Incorrectly, yeah. And and touching back on the Sanderson case, in your opinion, do you think anything <clears throat> went wrong? Either either side, you know, defense or plaintiff. Um, anything that went wrong 
or right, like very right on our side for... I can tell you something that went wrong and right on our side. Yeah. In the very first part of the case, the uh, judge, local judge, told us we couldn't go against the pharmacist, threw it out. In this case, went, we actually took it up on appeal to the 5th District Court of Appeals because we disagreed with the judge at the time. And... Uh, obviously, the fifth DCA saw it our way, and it was reversed, and we came back and did the case. So that's both good and bad. It was very upsetting to us at the beginning, but you know, to have the the higher court rule in our favor was you know professionally and morally very satisfying. And what was the ultimate result for the Sanderson case? Well, the ultimate result is we were able to obtain compensation for the the wife, for her deceased husband, and the rest of the family. And, you know, we were able to recover a multi-million dollar uh, settlement um, that met their needs, and uh, they were extremely happy with us. So, you know, that's a gives you a great sense of satisfaction when you take a case from the beginning to the end, you went on the law, you went on the the product aspect, you went on the medical side, the medicine, and then ultimately you get your client the money that they deserve. Well, and sometimes, just on a personal note, sometimes, especially in this case, to this woman, it really wasn't about the money. It was about the justification of losing her husband after they had spent their entire lives working and saving so true. and yeah. it was in their retirement years. And she really, it wasn't really about the money. In fact, I know that she gave a lot of it to charity, but it was a personal sense of accomplishment. This, this failure to have the pharmacies correctly prescribe the medicine took her husband's life. And that was very personal to her. What was the, basis of the judge throwing the case out at the time uh, no one had ever brought this type of a lawsuit against the uh, national pharmacy uh, and so they were able to get the local judge to dismiss the case and it went up on appeal to the fifth dca and ultimately um the the issue is one of law um and without getting bogged down in it essentially did the pharmacy have a duty or a responsibility to the public to, you know, monitor the, the various prescriptions that they were sending out? And did they have a duty to warn the uh, patient of the medications and whether they would cause him harm if taken together? And ultimately, like we said, the higher court came down on our side favorably. We... Um, we were then able to go back, and soon after that happened, we were back in court here in Orange County, and the defendants folded their tent with a settlement. Well, yeah, I mean, if not the pharmacy, then who? Because they're the only ones that knew about the three pills that you couldn't take together. Exactly. That is exactly hitting the nail on the head. Um, and... But if, from a legal standpoint, is did they have that responsibility? And up to this point, nobody had ever brought that kind of case. And then um, is there any, like, maybe behind the scenes or, like, facts people didn't know um, about? Did this case um, 
show up on the news or anything, or was there a confidentiality? I think uh, there's a confidentiality. That's why we've tried not to uh, be too specific about the pharmacy chain. Thank you for listening to Behind the Gavel. I'm Brian Cruz of Cruz and Pascara. I'm Becky Granado, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Alrighty, guys, thank you so much for listening. Our next episode is going to be about a police chase turned into a fatal car accident. Make sure you like and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram, Brian W. Cruz, or on Facebook, Cruz and Pesqueda, PA. And make sure to comment any questions you guys might have for our next episodes. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Behind the Gavel. Join the discussion on social media at Behind the Gavel. Again, that's behind the gavel, all one word. Tune in after the break for a preview of the next episode of Behind the Gavel. Hi, this is Brian Cruz of Cruz and Pascara. If you're in an automobile accident and you're injured, listen up. First, go to the hospital. Next, call your lawyer. Why? Because you need advice. Call Cruz and Pascara, your I-4 lawyer, 407-841-0200. 407-841-0200. Cruz and Pascara, your I-4 lawyer.